In nomine Padris, et Fidi, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Fidi, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudetu Jesus Christus. In secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the Meaning of Catholic. You are listening to the Terror of Demons morning show. Reclaiming Traditional Catholic Masculinity. Joined as always by Kennedy Hall. How you doing, brother? Living the dream. Actually, I am living the dream because it's beautiful weather. And uh, churches are opening up soon and there may or may not be ways to access Mass if you know somebody. So things are good. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, we were blessed to have a Corpus Christi <clears throat> procession yesterday. Wonderful. That was wonderful. Uh, it's, it's, it's getting hotter in the Midwest. So Do you guys uh, have any restrictions as far as like, can you have a certain group walking around or to get a, like, is there anything or you just kind of just went and did it and it was no problem? Um, I don't think so because they, they had some kind of vaccine restriction. Like they were, they were saying like, y'all don't have to, uh, wear a mask in a business anymore if you're vaccinated, but then we can't ask you if you're vaccinated or yeah. not. So then yeah. many it's people are show, still right? maxing. Many people are still masking. Yes. Um, but it seems to be dying. That's, down. Just, that's just fashionable. Less, that's just less people. Uh, yeah. So, but I, I don't actually know if there's any restrictions on. So uh, you have no more mask mandate. Just you're supposed to honor system if you're not in, uh, vaccinated. That's the idea. That is the idea. Oh. Yeah. So I bet you that's where we'll go. We'll, we'll be four or five months behind you. <laughs> five months. God willing, I hope not. Our <laughs> emergency not powers, our emergency powers are extended till December. Oh wow. Man. <laughs> Man. Okay. Uh well, thank you. Uh thank you very much, Marxist Freedom. Well, I was uh, in I was in Niagara last week filming for the Fatima Center, and my wife brought the kids and went to the the, the falls while I was filming. And uh she said she took she saw the Maid of the Mist. You ever been to the Maid of the Mist on the Falls? Uh I think so. I've been to the falls do we do years the boat? ago. Do we do the I boat that goes around? I think like, so. I think so. Yeah, like goes behind the falls. Right? Yeah, that's it. And um, actually, it's funny. <laughs> My buddy uh, that was a producer at the Fatima Center, the longtime radio guy, he was the voice of the Maid of the Mist. So oh, wow. for years, the like he was just a recording because um, okay. he his voiceover and stuff. So even the American one, because it's a shared enterprise between America and Canada there. And um, so he's seen, there's three or four shows he's seen, like network shows, where they film at Niagara and he hears his voice in the background because the scene takes place on the Maid of the Mist, which is funny. But um, my wife was there and she's with the kids on the Canadian side, ghost town. Um, <clears throat> literally, I mean, Niagara Falls is a city that's pretty much tourist. It's it's an it's an immoral city. So in this, in some sense, it's good things have been closed. But on the human side of just wanting to have businesses, things have been bad. And um, but anyway, she's there on the Canadian side and there's nothing going on. And uh, they've even upped the parking rates. Some people won't go. It's like 40, 20 bucks for 40 minutes um, parking. But so you won't go to the fall. So you won't congregate and spread, you know, death. Um, but she just, she's on the water. 200 meters from her is a packed boat of Americans that are allowed to go from the Niagara Falls, New York side. So she takes a picture and she's like, guys, I can see you like you're four, 200 meters away. It's just getting ridiculous. And, uh, but it's a good thing though. It's a very smart virus. It doesn't, it doesn't jump, right? Like it's, st it stays over there and then it doesn't come that 200 meters. So it's good. That's smart. Yeah. Very intelligent. The, uh, the <laughs> virus that we need to overcome. We need to outsmart this virus. So, uh, welcome to the second Sunday after mm -hmm. Pentecost. So, Such we have, uh, yes. So, once again, literaturethehome.com. Please <clears> support <throat> them. And uh, a beautiful uh, depiction here by Litter the Home, because we have the uh, Corpus <clears throat> Christi procession going forward. Oh, yeah. On the top here, as we go through, move through these ferias. Yeah. We do have, uh, today we have St. Robert Newminster. Uh, tomorrow is, these are feasts that are not on the universal calendar. Uh, I, you can sometimes find them on the back of your missile. Mm -hmm. Mary Mediatrix of all graces. Mm -hmm. uh, Wednesday is St. Columba, a great Irish monk saint. And we have the uh, yeah. these ferias depicted with 
Our Lady of Saint Margaret of Scotland. Yes. And of course, Sacred Heart of Jesus. This Friday. Um, the uh, liturgy of the home people have good things happening to them. So I won't, they'll, they'll probably re uh, reveal, but Jeremiah's been calling me and good things are happening. So praise be to God because uh, they deserve it because they have the best. This is like the, honestly, I, I, I'm looking at this right now. It's on the other side of my computer. It's on our wall here. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. I can't tell you what it's like to come down and you look at this thing. And it's like having your own, it's almost like having your own little piece of stained glass church beauty in your home. It's remarkable. And um, <clears throat> and we're going to be featuring them in the next Catholic Home Magazine. So stay tuned for that. So good things are happening with them. And speaking of St. Columba, uh, 25 minutes down the road for me is St. Columban, the town. Um, it's uh, this little stretch here in Huron, Perth County. This weird, you know, people say Canada is a, or America is a crypto Catholic country. Canada legitimately, historically, was a very Catholic country around here. And uh, down the road, we have St. Joseph's, which is named so because of a connection with St. Andre Bissette. And um, St. Columba is where all the Irish went. And uh, there's St. Columba in Ontario. And um, so there's lots of little places around here with a strong Catholic history from the days of the Great Lakes missionaries and things like that. So St. Columba is uh, an important one around here. Right on. Yeah. Excellent. Now, do you want to say anything about what you are doing, Kennedy? Oh, just stay tuned for Crusade Channel stuff. We have uh, we have something coming soon. So I'll leave it at that as far as it goes. But again, uh, people that would like to support, people have asked before, how can I support you? Whatever. I've never really done the Patreon thing, but I will be... Uh, imploring people to charitably consider signing up for uh, the crusade channel internet radio which um just from a perspective of mike church's vision of rebuilding the new christendom is what he calls it which i think is smart um he's got it set up so um, there's ways you can set up your internet uh businesses so they're not going to be taken down and uh, there are certain places on earth that will allow you to do their servers and things like that there Anyway, point is, he's got his setup. You know, we're all worried about censorship. We're all worried about getting taken down. And um, his is as bulletproof as anything. So uh, he really is a pioneer for uh, good, cons uh, good conservative Catholic, you know, endeavors about how can we sort of. You got You can't be in the mainstream, so to speak. But how do you build your own stream? Is how he build your own mainstream? Is how he says, which is smart. So. Uh, consider signing up and we'll have more details about that soon and uh, stay tuned for those. Yeah, this is to help Kennedy remove himself and his family from the globo homo system. That's what we call the bureaucracy of the international businesses and whatnot that uh, many of us are forced to be a part of just yeah. to make our daily bread. But at some point, especially in the month of humility, the the uh, freedom and uh, equality comes crashing down upon us. So uh, please support Kennedy to uh, escape the global homo system. We should um, we should. Well, I just thought we thought about this now, but <clears throat> we should put uh, a novena. You can do a novena for Saint John the Baptist. Oh, am I going to? Yeah. I wasn't planning on it. Should I've I? never done it before, but I've no. got some things I want to pray for, and I found a really good one. Oh, um, okay. we, should, we should encourage our, uh, you know, our super fans here. Maybe we can post it or something like that. Let's see. So this I can do a be... countdown on Twitter. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So we've got, okay, so the, yeah, yeah, that would start next week. Mm -hmm. 15th or whatever. Okay, okay, yeah. So what a great, what a great saint for, for this month. He defended marriage. Yes, you know? it's a great. We've got some great liturgical. Like we talked about Saint Charles Loanga last week. That we have some Charles great Baptist. saints, <laughs> yeah. and of course Saint Peter and Paul to final to finish it out. And we're going to renew in our home. We did the enthronement of the Sacred Heart, and oh, we're going to re renew that on the Sacred Heart Day as a family. Oh, perfect, perfect. Yes, everyone. Just reminder for everyone: enthrone the Sacred Heart best in your home as the king of your family. Mm -hmm. This is how we restore Christ the King in our society, is we do it first in our family. Mm -hmm. 
and we're going to talk in just a minute about the family and what was going on in the post-war world. Um, so in Throne the Sacred Heart, it is a devotion. It is a, uh, you saw months ago, I think, two, a few weeks ago, the um, plaque that we have, which is a, and you have the same one, Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's just a plaque which all the members of the family sign ascribing kingship to Jesus Christ in the family. Yep. And it's an enthronement of the Sacred Heart. So, yes, this Friday is a very special day. And so enthroned the Sacred Heart. So let's talk about the post-war world. Mm -hmm. You talked last week, Kennedy, you had a great point, which I loved. I'd never heard that before. Uh, the, the Vatican II is the post-war council. Mm -hmm. And it, when we talk about the post-war world, it is very much defined by this post-war mentality, which is coming straight out of the Vatican II, out of World War II and goes into Vatican II and really defines the whole world that we're living in is defined by this post-war mentality and the situation and all sorts of ways. Before we get into all that, I wanted to talk about the idea of judgment and how are we to be prudent and charitable? Mm -hmm. I want to read this passage from the Summa because I think it's, we, we've talked before this time, there's not a lot of controversy when we talk about these controversial figures, figures before this time. But now that we're getting into the controversial period, everybody's got really strong opinions about this and that and all sorts of different aspects of it. And I just want to remind everyone the importance of these virtues when we discuss these things. So if you go to Summa Theologica, Secunda Secundi, this is on New Advent, and you go over to question 60, this is in, in the virtue of justice, judgment, article four, whether doubts should be interpreted for the best. Mm -hmm. St. Thomas says, doubts should be interpreted for the best. What does he mean by that? He says that the things from the very fact that a man thinks ill of another without sufficient cause, he injures and despises him. Mm -hmm. Now, no man ought to despise or in any way injure another man without urgent cause. And consequently, unless we have evident indications of a person's wickedness, we ought to deem him good by interpreting for the best whatever is doubtful of him. So here in Republic of Objection 1 has the, has the key point here. He who interprets doubtful matters for the best may happen to be deceived more often than not. <laughs> Yet, it is better to err frequently through thinking well of a wicked man mm -hmm. than to err less frequently through having an evil opinion of a good man, because in the latter case, an injury is inflicted, but not in the former. So St. Thomas is making mention of doubtful matters. So what we mean by doubtful matters is we're talking about something where we know someone did X, Y, Z in this date, in this circumstance. And we're not exactly sure what his intention was. We're not exactly sure what he knew. We're not exactly sure who advised him. All we know is his action resulted or at least correlated with all these bad things. And so St. Thomas says, if, unless we have evident indications of a person's wickedness, we must interpret this action for the best, meaning this person, well, this per, like we talked about Pius XI. Well, Pius XI made some bad decisions, arguably. And so to interpret those to the best is saying, well, he probably had bad counselors. He was misinformed. You know, he condemned Padre Pio. You know, he did that because Padre Pio had enemies in the Vatican. And these enemies lied about Padre Pio to Pius XI. Pius XI believed those lies inadvertently, even he, you know, with the best intentions, he was trying his best, you know, as a Pope, you have a massive bureaucracy of people yep. that you rely on to try to make decisions. And so if, if any, any clique of those people are enemies of a particular, and there's tons of enemies, that's always been the case. So we've always had dealings with this, all these politics, politicking in, in the Vatican. So you're always going to have this issue, but People sin, the sin of rash judgment. This is the sin of rash judgment, right. which is when we when we take a doubtful matter, which 
we don't have evidence. We don't have evident indications of a person's wickedness. And then we take that and we interpret it for the worst. We say, well, this person must have been a heretic, modernist, whatever, Freemason, XYZ, because he was thinking this way or he said this thing or whatever. And we don't have evidence. So let me give an another example. Bunini is a good example of this because until recently, we did not have very strong evidence of his wickedness. We just right. had a lot of bad things that looked Conjecture. really bad. Now we have the testimony of Charles Murr, who mm -hmm. is the spiritual son of Monsignor Marini. Monsignor Marini was in the room when Bunini was accused with Paul VI and booted. And he was yeah. accused of Freemasonry and they had the documents at the time. So Charles Murr was there. He's a, so he's a secondhand witness to the actual fact he was intimately tied to it. So we have pretty evident, you know, evident uh, indication here of a person's wickedness. So now we're going to say, Bunini, you were probably a Freemason based on this yeah. evidence. So, okay, now we can interpret this as best we can according to truth. Yeah. So we're not going to just give him, you know, the better of the doubt as much as we can here. But for others, we can give them further benefit of the doubt because we don't have total evidence. So, so what I mean by that, that what this gets into is when we talk about John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul II, and we also talk about Lefebvre because we want to have, you know, Kennedy, you've expressed, you don't want anyone to judge Lefebvre who has not read the biography and, you know, the works of Davies and various things. But to be fair, we should also say the same about John Paul II, Paul VI, all these other actors who may or may not have been acting out of wickedness or whatnot, um, because people accuse these men of being wicked and whatnot. But we should always keep to this charitable and truthful judgment, where if we don't have this evidence, then we should be using the judgment of charity towards them and interpreting the best we can synthetically. So Kennedy, what's your thoughts? Yep. That's, a, that's, you have to do that. And, um, the key term there is evident that you said, you know, if you don't have something that basically can, I mean, you're never going to have definitive proof. I mean, sometimes you will, but it's very rare. You're going to have definitive smoking gun proof about, um, someone's actions and activities especially if they're hidden i mean maybe if you've worked in an organization where you're pretty certain so and so was on the take or something like that you might never know for sure so you have to do your best to i talked to a priest about this um you know you have to do your best when you're trying to navigate your your way ethically through let's say um a conspicuous situation where you think that maybe you're involved with somebody who's you know into some some bad activities um you can look at the results of what they're doing you can look at the patterns of behavior and um you can prudently make decisions to either separate yourself or if you have to warn people about x y and z as charitably as possible but if something's not public you don't go around and make it public you know like if it's a if it's a public sin and then it's known, then you can talk about it because it's happened and it's out there. But you can't try and bring up somebody's, what you think are, are things that they've done when it's not public, okay? That's kind of that line you have to not cross. Even if you think the person's pretty wicked. And you know what? That's, um, that's one of the big issues uh, within the church right now with how do we deal with like abuse stuff? How do we deal with um, corruption stuff? Uh, some some Catholic commentators basically make their living um, in a way, just kind of going after people in the church all the time. Um, because on the one hand, sure, there's been some big Ted McCarrick type stuff where it's clearly out in the open and it's, and it's, and it's become a public thing. So it's public. You can talk about it. It's happened. It's not in secret. The right channels have shown the right things. Um, but on the other hand, um, this critical eye where we go looking at, I just think it's made an unhealthy situation. I'm kind of, it's kind of off topic a little bit, but I, I, I worry that, um, and people probably know which organization I'm talking about, but I'm not trying to start one of those trad wars or anything. I'm just saying the mentality that it's almost a tabloid mentality. You know, we have to avoid that. I think that's kind of the, the best way to look at it is we have a tabloid right. mentality in our culture of, 
you know, what's so-and-so getting married, you know, and that sort of thing. And the problem is, is that as Catholics, the moral fiber of someone is important. Uh, but at the same time, we can't be pharisaical and say they've made mistakes, therefore they can't be trusted. Well, then when none of us could be trusted. Um, so the, the, the balance there is um, uh, interpret as best as you can. Um, and if I could give a little piece of advice, you know, one thing that's so tiresome uh, dealing with just not just trads, but just Catholics that are that are trying to look at things with a critical eye is um, the negativity. You know, um, it, it doesn't, you know, if you're constantly uh, not giving the benefit of the doubt because you don't trust anyone for any reason, um, that's an error as well because, uh, you know, it's bad for your soul eventually because, you know, even Ripperger has a, Father Ripperger has a, a nice sermon about this or a conference, I guess, about like, I think it's called the spiritual effects of negative thinking or, or something like that. And if you're constantly viewing every man as a potential psyop double agent trying to screw you over sort of thing. Um, it might be true 70% of the time, but that, that 30% of the time when you're wrong, it just, it just contributes to a big negativity, um, which is bad. You know, um, I've tr been trying to navigate that recently because one of the things that I have to comment a lot on basically our politics uh, and how they intersect with the church. And that's, but, but I'll become more and more as I do the uh, crusade channel stuff. And I've realized that, uh, yes, there's a constant mistrust of the regular channels, which is important because we know we're being lied to in a lot of cases, but it's almost a mentality of never trusting anything and expecting the worst of everybody, um, which is really unhealthy. And we see here from Aquinas, it's not balanced. It doesn't give us balance of trying to look at figures, um, look at them properly, you know. And John Paul II is a good example. John Paul II is a good example. <clears throat> you know, uh, you can't you can't interpret Assisi as a good event, but that doesn't mean you can't uh, rejoice in the fact that some people say, "I fell in love with the rosary because I heard." Uh, a story about JP2 praying somewhere, you know, like there's good things that happen and there's bad things that happen. And if you have a consistent, totally negative outlook, then um, in a way that's as bad as being wide eyed, bushy tailed and doughy eyed and always accepting everything. It's just an unbalanced extreme, if that makes sense. Yeah. What we need to have, we do need to have an inclination towards interpreting for the best Yep. for every man, but especially the hierarchy and bishops and our, our fathers. And, and we talked about this last week. We, we, we're in this age of fatherlessness mm -hmm. and abusive fathers. And so mm -hmm. we have this woundedness as mm -hmm. abused children. And the way we express that woundedness is by an unforgiving spirit towards them That's right. and a complete distrust of all authority and hierarchy and and we should have an inclination towards wanting them to be good i guess uh yeah. yet not with with the critical eye to uh, to submit to the truth because humility means submitting to the truth conforming to the truth and you can take you can take different approaches depending on your situation so like if you're a father uh you know that we live in an age of great immorality let's say you're considering schooling options, right? It doesn't mean that you believe every public school teacher is an evil person, but you're saying there's certain risks I won't take. You know, it's, you know, because not that I'm imputing this on <clears throat> every teacher or something, that's not what you're doing, but you are saying, I can't take a risk in this situation because I have care over these kids, right? Uh, that's that makes sense in that situation to be maybe overly cautious because the risk is too great. But on the other hand, uh, you don't uh, impute malice to your peers uh, because you have to navigate that situation differently. So, end of the day, benefit that as much as possible, and and prudence in where you're applying those judgments based on what you're in control of. Right. So. The I, I think another good example is Pope Francis himself, because mm -hmm. I would prefer 
I would prefer to be completely wrong in my estimation yeah. of the Holy Father. That would be that should be our preference. We should be, be great. <laughs> we should be wanting to be wrong. We yeah. should be wanting to be wow. I've, I'm I've been completely proved wrong because from from a reasonable estimation of the facts that you know when he when he refused to answer the dubia, mm. when he refused to answer the vegano charges, those are the things that I was like wow what what. And what is the possible explanation of this? Except either he's completely ignorant of the necessary knowledge of his office or he's malicious. And so I would hope that he's ignorant or there's some other aspect of this that I don't understand, Mm -hmm. which would prove him completely orthodox and pious. That would be that should be all of our preference. We should all want that as Mm -hmm. Catholics. We should have an inclination towards wanting that and being immediately submissive to the truth if, if it were somehow shown to us that it was the case. So there should be an allowance for being proved wrong. But instead, like you said, there's just sort of this I- immense negativity where we're just always talking about how bad Pope Francis or whoever or any bishop or anybody is so bad. And so we're just talking about that all the time. And I know people are wounded and we've got, you know, people are abusive children. Or abused children, but we're ultimately committing a sin of rash judgment. We're committing a sin against charity. We're just spreading a lack of piety for the hierarchy in general, so that there's uh, an unforgiving spirit. And so we need to go through this. So another aspect of this is that we've had three canonized popes: uh, John Paul or John twenty third, Paul six, and John Paul two. And there are issues with the canonization procedure. Uh, which many people have discussed. Um, but the traditional position of the theologians, going back to Francisco Suarez and various others of the theologians, of the, of the scholastics, is that canonizations are infallible. And that is something that's a very high degree of certainty. Sententia certa, which is the fourth degree. It could be argued that it's a sententia communis, which means that it's, it's sort of an arguable position. That's sort of the, the stance that some are taking is that the canonizations are infallible. That's an arguable position. And some would say that it's not arguable. But essentially, I I do not have any reason to question that. And so I simply call them saints because they've been canonized. Uh, canonization does not necessarily mean that everything they, everything they did was infallible and everything they did was right either. But there's a certain, I, I do think that there is a, a factor of this negativity that we're talking about in this reluctance and sort of vehement denial of a canonization. Um, so I'm just going to call them all saints. You know, you're not required to call them saints. You're not required to pay them cultists or pay them particular veneration or you have a devotion to them or anything like that. But I, I think that we run into problems if people just sort of shoot at the hip with this type of theology. And, and with when we're talking about things that have been passed down from our fathers, we want to we be traditional. Mm-hmm. We should be pious towards the traditions of our fathers, which include a very strong uh, affirmation of the infallibility of canonizations. You know, it would be interesting to talk about this because um, uh, you're right. I It's hard to... like. I should clarify too. When we say somebody's a saint, obviously we mean they're in heaven. So, from a practical perspective, unless a pope dies, let's say Paul the Sixth, even who is the easiest pope to find objectionable things with overall, let's say. I mean, that's just you know, if we're being honest, okay, that was a pretty wasn't a very fruitful time. Let's call it. Um, if you die with the sacraments, um, and you have literally billions of people praying for you. <laughs> it's likely that you're going to go to heaven. Like, let's just be honest about that. Um, from a, even if you die pretty wicked, but you had the sacraments and were in purgatory. I mean, the amount of rosaries and the amount of the amount of things, the amount of masses done for you are legitimately done, and that's just kind of a practical matter. So that that's easy to understand, okay? But Peter Kwasniewski, I have no, I have no theological opinion. Well, I have no. I have no issue accepting the objective reality of someone having died with the sacraments and then that person being in heaven based on being released from purgatory because of prayers. I have no, re- I have no, like that just, that makes sense to me. So as far as calling anyone a saint who dies with the sacraments in the technical term, I have no problem with that as long as, you know, there's a reason for that. However, 
as far as, but, but, uh, Peter Kwasniewski has an article and I don't understand it. I haven't read it uh, all the way through and I don't have the theological acumen that he does. And he says why we need not and should not call Paul the sixth saint. And again, um, he'd be an interesting guy to talk to because his different is his, his opinion is different than other people who have respectable opinions on it. And I think he's probably arguing that it's in the realm of St. Tensive Communis. That would be probably how he would have to do it. Um, but he'd be interesting to talk to just to figure out what he means by that and have him elaborate. And uh, because um, that's something that I don't understand enough. Um, but from the perspective of benefit of the doubt, as you said, um, you know, there's no sense in, um, there's no sense in, uh, unnecessarily bursting somebody's bubble just to be mean <laughs> or just to be uh, silly uh, or um, cause friction. But at the same time, there's no obligation for anyone to have a devotion to any saint. You know, um, John Paul II, for some people, is very important, and that's great. And if that, and, and if that is a positive thing, I'm happy. Um, but he's, you know, he's different different strokes for different folks and uh, I have devotions to different saints. So we don't need to concern ourselves with it too much. Um, although I do understand where Kwasniewski is coming from a little bit um, in reading his article just a bit though, as far as uh, does it get to the point where the cultists, let's say to a saint is harmful to the faithful insofar as maybe the bad aspects are exalted as the reason why somebody's canonized. Like Oscar Romero, you know, I mean, let's be honest, some of the stuff was kind of liberation theology-esque, although there are stories that he did have, uh, there's actually stories that he was quite a good Thomist, weirdly enough, and some of his sermons apparently were quite good, I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, I know from working in the Catholic school system, Oscar Romero was a super saint because he's a social justice saint for them, and I'll be honest, promulgation of his life is really just promulgation of socialism with the cross on it. That's bad. So in that position, I would never, I would never um, promote him uh, just because for me, the, the, the atmosphere around it is so liberation theology centric and so socialist centric that I think it's too dangerous insofar as what is being promoted, what are they going to find when they look him up? Um, on the other hand, I have no problem understanding they died with the sacraments. So there's, there's like a balance there. Yeah, absolutely. So as we talk about this, just keeping that very important thing in mind that we knew to need to have the judgment of charity, judgment of truth, and not fall into rash judgment about men that we don't have evidence that's clear and, and evident for wickedness. So therefore, we should tr treat them the best as much as we can when we judge them. So now I want so we want to talk about we got half an hour left talking mm -hmm. about the post-war world going up to Vatican II and understanding Vatican II as a post-war council. Now, this series has been delving into all sorts of different things in the context of Fatima, which was the message from World War I to repent lest there be World War II. That pretty much sums up Fatima. Yeah. Now, we failed to repent, so there was World War II. And we talked about it uh, a few times ago, which where there was a sexual revolution. Even worse, it wasn't even just not repentance. It was the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. It was the first sexual revolution. And there were so many different things going mm -hmm. on with that. So we are, we've already had a, a great breakdown of the family. And this is especially true with the economic situation that was destroying the extended family, as we've discussed, the extended family, which is grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles all together in the same community that is the normal it's normal the normal thing for what a family is and that's the way it's been for centuries and since the industrial revolutions in in the early 1800s and in the, and in the early 1900s the family has been reduced to the nuclear family and then yeah. the the first big fatherless crisis was actually happening in the early 1800s Yep. where there was because of this economic shift you already have you're already having fathers having to work outside the home because believe it or not the fathers what we talk about women staying in home but the fathers also with all everything was it was the we talked about the economy being the law of the home 
and the whole thing being a part of the home, father, mother, children, they're all working in the field together, or they're working in their craft together, or they're all intimately tied. You know, the father has to go down the street to his shop, something like that. He yep. walks there. You know, that's not that's not outside the home <laughs> relative to yeah, relative to what we have to do to go outside the home to work as fathers. You know, the fathers who went outside the home in years past did not really they just mm -hmm. down the street, you know. So this is the situation that we're in. So we're already already having a fatherless crisis in the 19th century, especially we have the breakdown of marriage as an economic institution. This is where marriage is losing its economic value because the man and the woman are, are not as much marrying and working together as an economic unit. Mm -hmm. So the mother is not as much involved in the economy anymore, even though she's always been the mother, the mistress of the home, the, you know, the, the law of the home. Um, but this breakdown is happening and the father is outside the home. And then that's, we, then we have the drunkenness and the, the promiscuity happening and the, the divorce starts to becoming yep. more and more prominent in the late 19th century. We're talking it the did, end yeah. of the civil war in the Amer in the Americas. So 1860s, 1870s, 1890s, Leo the 13th writes Arcanum to address the marriage situation. I think that's 1890, if yep. I recall. So this situation's already spiraling and, and, and having all these issues. This is when Our Lady of Fatima comes during this, <laughs> this issue. And then the first sexual revolution just completely continues to destroy the family. You know, it's funny about Arcanum. It's about marriage, but it's one of the best documents used to prove, prove the traditional doctrine of creation. Because Leo XIII starts it off at one point saying something like, you know, we we profess what no one can deny, that on the sixth day, you know, <laughs> um, just talking about, because he was talking about the primordial relationship of marriage and Adam and Eve. I just sent you an article in the chat, though. Perhaps you can share yeah. it with people. Um, it's the best article I've ever read. I read it three or four years ago. It's called A Father's Presence in the Home. And the author, John A. Cuddleback, Cutback. I don't know who it is, but um, it's from Christendom College, their magazine they have. And uh, it goes through the history of the household using Aristotelian uh, things. And it's a really good, really good article. And uh, it talks about um, there never was a, a separation. You know, the, the closest we have today, the closest we have today is something like farm, you know, the people who, who own farms where, yeah, dad works a lot but he's home all the time. Um, and just knowing that he's there, even though he's out in the field, he's there. Um, and, and, uh, it's a big difference. So that used to be common for every industry. You could be a blacksmith. Um, some people today, perhaps if they own a business like a restaurant and they kind of live in the house and the front is this, the restaurant that's rare nowadays, but, but, um, that's a whole other topic, but that's been a big issue with urban planning and, and the way yes. cities have been set up with the car and things. And it's really destroyed the the relationship of, of fathers yes. in the home. So, but that's yes. a big part of the faith. Right. So we have all this breakdown in the family situation. And this is even before divorce becomes really what it is today. Yep. I mean, divorce is, is becoming more prominent, but it's still pretty minor. Minor. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in the 1940s and 50s, most Protestant families in the United States and in the world are still shunning divorce. Yeah. Divorce is still a shameful thing at this point. Now, but I want to introduce here. A, a much more insidious, much more insidious infiltration of the family that happens in 1946. We already had the scientism of psychology. Yes. there mm -hmm. That's already been prominent since Sigmund Freud in the late 19th century, coming into the 20th century. The 1920s sexual revolution is very much Freudian, which is the scientism that one must let go of one's emotions and just let it all hang out and just do what you feel. And that's what's psychologically healthy. That's what the psychologists are saying. But this is a scientism because science, scientism is the use of physical sciences to achieve a philosophical end. That's how I define it that's good. At least in my book. So the scientism is basically just using something that we can, we can observe this, but then we're going to make some philosophical conclusion by by that, which is mm -hmm. jumping the gun on what you're even doing. So the scientism, there's a, there's a very, very influential Freudian scientism that comes out in 1946, which 
creates a fatherlessness that is very insidious. And this, what am I talking about? I'm talking about Benjamin Spock's oh, Dr. Spock. The Common Sense Book <laughs> of Baby and Child Care, yeah. 1946. This has been a bestseller ever since. And this book says that it is unhealthy to discipline a child. Really? It is unhealthy. Yes. It is unhealthy. News to me. Psychologically unhealthy to discipline a child. What we need to do is just let the children have what they want. And when they feel something, this is the Freudian idea. The Freudian idea is you feel something, you should just get it. Because otherwise, you're going to have repression. Repression, and you're going to feel bad. You're going to have guilt and all this bad stuff. That feels, you know what that, that feels all that bad. is, if you think about it, is you, you should sin because otherwise you'll sin more. <laughs> that's all. It's, that's basically all that it's saying. You should sin, otherwise you'll have a conscience. It's kind of yeah, like exactly. That. So yeah. Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care, this became a massive bestseller. This is 1946. Massive bestseller. And this is what guided the so-called greatest generation's parenting. That's right. They did not discipline their children because nope. they believed in Dr. Spock. So this is the scientism of this false psychology, which, so this is a very, very insidious fatherlessness because we could even have a father that was inside the home. He was faithful to his wife. You know, he was making the, the bread for the children and everything like that. But if he believed in Dr. Spock, he is becoming a de facto fatherless household. He's, he's removing his fatherly discipline from the household. And then you know who's supposed to raise your kids? Because this is the thing. You obviously know that they're misbehaving. Like, duh, you see it and you go, my kid's ungrateful and spoiled and whatever. Um, <clears throat> then you go to the schools and say, well, why aren't you teaching him this? You know, like you should be learning everything you need to learn at the schools. And in my research for my Illuminati book, um, a desire to have public education was a novel idea uh, by basically Adam Weishaupt, who started the Illuminism philosophy. And um, it was basically he was a Rousseauian. He was basically the noble savage of which goes in line with Dr. Spock's idea of don't discipline, let them just flourish and let them be that sort of thing. <clears throat> And then the schools would be there to teach them everything they need to know, um, which is a dangerous combination. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the big myth, the greatest generation, because look at the history books about the brothels during World War One in France. They were empty because the men that were at war were generally moral. And then look at the, the accounts of the brothels uh, during World War II, and it was the busiest golden age for French prostitution in history. Um, those were the men that were over there. Now, Obviously, there were tons of acts of heroism. This is, you know, again, benefit of the doubt. On the one hand, for example, like talking about the American Revolution. Clearly, it wasn't justified in the sense of Catholic just war theory. But you can look at the magnanimity of the various players that were in the... Uh, you can look at the founders. You can look at <clears throat> people who did certain things and say, well, that guy was heroic in that situation. I mean, that was a, he was a man of courage. You know, there's nothing wrong with admitting that. World War II is very similar. Um, it wasn't black and white. We've talked about this at, at length. We don't do that here. Um, definitely that generation uh, had a level of stick to And <clears throat> I kind of look at it like <clears throat> they almost were, you know, that generation, 1940s, 1930s, 1940s. I mean, they were born in the early 1900s. Some of them maybe late 1800s, but that would have been rare to be an active service. They were raised by the people who had grown up in the late 1800s, basically. They were raised by the generation that uh, was in Laura Ingalls Wilder books and things. And although, you know, a lot of their morals had become shot, or at least they became apathetic in how they transferred them, they definitely had a, a residual steam of hard work and uh, enterprising mentality. So, yeah, did they fail in a way of imparting morals and stuff? Yeah, of course they did. However, it can't be underestimated that they clearly from an objective perspective were super, uh, they had virtuous habits. Let's put it that way. They had virtuous habits that were formed through the lifestyle that they were had to live as technology was, was in flux. Um, <clears throat> which I think about today 
And one of the reasons why, um, yes, are we living through a communist thing? Yes, are we living through this? Yeah. But I talked about this with Michael Semin, um, fan of the show, maybe he's watching. And one of the fatal flaws is look at your Marxists of the 1920s and 1910s and 30s. Um, again, raised in this era of just even if you were a socialist, you had to be rugged. <laughs> even if you, you you couldn't be an SJW uh, with you know purple hair who could never do a push up, you if you were a Marxist, you were wrong, but you were still personally very well formed in hard work, etc. Because that was necessary just to be a citizen. That's not necessary anymore. So it's this double edged sword where do we have a moral decay that's unprecedented? We do, but you know. These globalists, these George Soros types, the, that generation who has raised this 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 world of debauchery and stuff. On the 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 on the flip side, there's no way that they're going to get their uh, peons, their pylons, to do anything because they've raised them without virtue. But they ex but they also have no and they have no virtue and they have no morals. Um, so you know today's Marxists are not your grandma's Marxists. They might be messed up and think wrong things and want bad things to happen. But Justin, Justin Trudeau is a perfect example of it. He's as insane. I mean, if you actually look at him, he's as insane morally as any leader that any world, any country has ever had. He likes Stalin. He likes Castro. He likes those guys. Um, but if you were to say, here, pick up a rifle and go lead uh, <laughs> a battalion or something like that, which in fairness, guys like Stalin and Castro would have done personally as as their own convictions, there's no way he's going to do that. He would he would pee his pants. He wouldn't know what to do. Yes. So it's, a, it's, it's an interesting... Uh, uh, I think I, I think we're at the end, in a sense, of that experiment because just objectively, demographically, that generation, the Nancy Pelosi's and so forth, they're just dying. And and they've degraded people's morals so hard that um, you know, it's going to be rough for the next little while because things will devolve still. But there's no chance that they'll be able to build anything out of it because they don't have the skills. Yeah, what we saw last summer... <clears throat> last summer was the summer of love yeah which is a bunch of 20 year olds burning things hmm. and what we see there i think is the same thing that they saw in the 1960s they saw the fruit of dr spock they throw hmm. the fruit of when fathers don't discipline their children they don't teach them hard work they don't teach them virtue they don't they're not of you know they're afraid to give them corporal punishment when necessary that's unhealthy. Well, that's what happens. You don't have any sort of virtue. You have, you're, you're just spoiled. You know, Kennedy and I both have four children and we know what it's like when a child gets in a, in a mentality of, of being spoiled. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not good. Oh, and and this is, this is what we saw. So the 1960s, the generation of the 1960s and the upheaval is a result of the greatest generations failing to discipline their children as a, a great degree. Obviously there's all these other factors that we'll talk about, but this is a huge factor right here. Now you just pointed out and we're, we're just not even going to be able to get to all the other important things that are going into 40s and fifties this week. But another important factor is the economy of effeminacy. Mm -hmm. We live currently in an even worse economy of effeminacy. But in the 1950s, there was born the economy of effeminacy. What I mean by that is that before this time, like you just said, Kennedy, people had to work hard. They had to work hard to do things. Even in you know the mm -hmm. early 1910s, yeah. 1920s, if you were a Marxist, you had to get your rifle and lead a battalion. Mm -hmm. But now if you're a Marxist, you can go and burn stuff. Yeah, you know, and, and you'll be protected by the police. Yeah. And uh, so the economy of effeminacy is when there is the technology and the economy has, quote unquote, developed to the point where everything is going towards an infinite uh, in, an infinite increase in comforts and pleasures. Right. That's right. It's all about providing more comfort and more pleasure and less suffering, less hard work, more machines doing everything for you, more, you know, putting your feet up and drinking a martini 
where well everything does itself and that is the economy of effeminacy because it's creating a generation who is not only not disciplined by their fathers but is expecting the world they're expecting the world to just give everything to them yeah instead of actually doing doing the hard work and this is what like we like i said this is what we saw in the in the last year this is what people people today even think they think that the government should just give them everything and you know if there's a problem in the society that the government's it's the government's problem <laughs> you know if we have a problem in society that the government should fix it you know, there, there are limits to how much the government can even do to help things, even if I don't know what people, pro- I honestly <laughs> don't know is, what this is the economy of a fantasy. It, it is like, I, I mean, I'm living, everyone knows I'm living in Ontario through the weirdest, not worst, but weirdest, weirdest lockdown stuff. But it's re- you know, people, uh, the, the liberals, uh, leftists, and let's lots, lots of the conservatives who were just conservative financially, but really were just immoral and whatever. Um, constantly clamoring for the government to do more do more and it's like what do you do you do you want them to come and wipe your nose <laughs> uh, like do you maybe they do I, I there's a certain point where i don't know what um and <laughs> mike trinovich i know he's controversial but he had some tweet um a while ago and he basically he made a really interesting um analysis because it is pitiable what's happening. Like, if, I feel really bad for the children. I really, really feel bad for the kids. We go, it's it's very strange. Uh, you know, I, I don't mean this in a judgmental sense, but, you know, we go to public parks and things like that. And obviously kids are kids are kids. But um, it's so, I was talking about this with my with my friends and family the other day about we kind of miss the 90s we're like oh i missed the 90s i know it wasn't perfect but i just think even then there was still this idea that you could walk around the neighborhood for one <clears throat> knock on door hey can jimmy come out and play that never happens anymore unless you happen to be friends as families with somebody down the street and it's already you know like you, you already are personal friends um and yeah there were risks because there's always risks but it was known that hey everyone has a standard of like not having certain TV shows on at certain times in the day. <laughs> Everyone has a standard that like kids shouldn't play violent video games. Everyone, you know, that was just basic. Everyone has a standard of manners and please and thank you and, and whatever. And um, but that's gone. That's completely gone. And you see that when you're at parks with kids. My kids are, you know, five, four, three, and two next month. And um, my children are blissfully sheltered. And I mean that in the sense where they're just little weirdos sometimes because they don't know that, they don't, they don't, they don't interact. They interact with lots of kids, but not with the public school type. And they'll just run up and be like, Hey, my name is so-and-so. How you doing? And the kid kind of look at them like, why, why are you so friendly? And it's, but, but I feel really bad for a lot of these kids who <clears throat> are just raised without any virtue discipline at all. And they're just, and sin is promoted to them. So Mike uh, Trinovich, he had a tweet basically saying, it's going to be interesting in the future. You're going to have like two types of children that are going to grow up into adults. You're going to have basically the Christian. He said they're going to be Christian. They're going to be fit and they're going to be uh, homeschooled or, you know, private charter schooled, whatever, and be a very competent, moral, healthy person, generally speaking. And this, again, things could happen. On the other hand, you're going to have kids who just kind of are thrown into the system and they're going to be unhealthy physically, literally, uh, morally unhealthy and, uh, very uneducated in a sense of any real knowledge. Um, it's going to be a very strange bifurcation over the next 20, 30 years. Um, and this lockdown stuff has really illuminated, you know, you've, uh, you've seen a, a, a distinct separation in the way that people view thriving for their kids, where, um, on the one hand, you have parents who try to protect their kids as much as possible from what's going on whether you think it's serious that's not the point the point is is well, clearly this isn't a good way to live and we shouldn't normalize this for children because it'll it'll cause neuroses about germs and all that sort of stuff on the other hand you have parents who are just saying the government's perfect follow them whatever and then you see what happens to those kids i mean i saw a kid last year my kids were at the park and this poor little girl my kids were running up to say hello and stay six feet back have you heard of coronavirus and it, my kids didn't know what that word was and um and they said, my son, one of my sons, dad, what is, 
you said something about Shona virus, Shona Lyris or something. And I was like, oh, some, they're just playing pretend, you know? And he, okay, forgot about it. But I'm like, whoa, this kid was six years old and was telling, you know, that's a very strange, and that was an extreme example. Um, but that's what we're seeing now. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pitiable. Um, and I'll, I'll stop off my soapbox here in half a second here. But one thing that I think can help us get away from this uh, economy of effeminacy, I really like that term. I really like that term. I'm going to have to steal that and, and write a book on it or something. But um, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is one of the biggest factors for effeminacy, and, and uh, which people should know means a reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure. That's what it means. Um, is the smartphone devices and things like that. Because let's be honest, they're engineered for, you know, like this, I got in my pocket here, they're engineered for, uh, you know, being the most, uh, <laughs> they're engineered for being the most pleasurable thing to look at and yeah. whatever. So I was thinking about it for a while and I was inspired by Eric Salmon's article about, he said he's going dumb. And um, I, I got ordered the dumb phone. I ordered a light, they're called a light phone. Uh, they're amazing. Um, I can't wait till it comes in. And I think that's a practical step every person could take. Listen, you sit and we got a computer in front of us. You might have a tablet. You can have a unit. You can have a Wi-Fi hotspot wherever you go. You can go down to something that just has calling, texting, and podcasts, and you'll be fine. And uh, so that's one one aspect where I think uh, we could we could all take to to get out of this circle of economy of effeminacy. Yeah, the economy of effeminacy is when profit is made by making people effeminate, making people addicted to pleasures and comforts as much as possible. Nobody wants to, this is, this is like, this, it's so it's, it's everywhere. I mean, I think of, I think of the medical, we're talking about the medical stuff. Uh, you know, when you have a disease, it's mm -hmm. not profitable to work on your diet and helping your immune system. That's not profitable. That's right. Food, Read and write food, exercise. No, how about some pharmaceuticals? How about some drugs? Put yourself on some drugs. There we go. That, that's how we can make some money. So yeah. the economy of effeminacy is where there's so much, and this is especially in the 1950s, is when this really starts to really get going mm -hmm. because that's when you have the invention of the the programmable device that programs your mind inside your home i aka the television mm -hmm. television programs your brain inside the home which is just a device of effeminacy basically uh, it becomes that way you know you can be you can watch a moderate moderate amount of television and, and movies if you're moderated but they're trying to as as the invention continues uh, as it continues and continues yeah. It's just trying to create a more and more of an addiction to the screen, an addiction to pleasure, an addiction to just sitting Messages, on the couch and watching propaganda, binging. So yeah. this is the economy of feminacy. So we have much more to talk about the 1940s. Well, we and should 50s. quickly link it to Fatima, though. Uh, yes, because this is Fatima. Um, Russia will spread her errors. Well, you might think, uh, what does Russia have to do with this? Well, this, the early part of the Russian Revolution was extremely rugged and stuff. Um, and then obviously there was a, a, a the sociologists called the Russian superego. There was a, 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 a strength of resolve, almost a materialist stoicism uh, about because of the austerity of living in a Soviet regime because of the lack of certain material comforts. However, uh, they were huge on pushing television. And if you talk to Michael Semin again, who lived in the Czech, Czechoslovakia at the time, um, that was the average day. It was, you go to work and do your automated sort of work thing that you did. You went to school and learned the propaganda stuff that you learned. You did sports and things, which yeah, again, individuals might have their certain hardworking things, but from a perspective of how you occupied yourself, everyone watched a lot of TV. Everybody watched a ton of TV. You come home, TV. And that was, um, everyone watching the same. And it was a very much a, a Soviet method of, of mind control, essentially. And um, this is part of Russia spreading her errors because, you know, when you take away the health of the soul, this is why psychology is such a dangerous game nowadays is because 
90% of pro- my opinion, 90% of people are going through when they have guilt or depression, sorry, is guilt because guilt makes you depressed. Um, you know, you feel bad about things. It makes you have melancholy because you know you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. Um, and then you have to justify that by their means. So one of the ways that you will do that is you'll distract yourself. And um, as you grow more sinful and don't uh, have recourse to confession, uh, the more distractions you need in order to numb your conscience. So this is why people in my generation, they can't fall asleep without watching TV, literally. I remember I'm, they can't. They can't fall asleep without watching TV. They can't, um, you know, they're just addicted to it. And that's, think about uh, the consistent messaging that you're going to get. And that is a propaganda, that's a propagandist dream. If you could have told, told uh, Vladimir Lenin that in 100 years, you could literally have consistent, me- you could, t- you know, funny enough, Pitbull, that rapper. Anyway, he had a he he's from Cuba, right? So he had a he doesn't like communism. He had a funny clip that went around about what had gone on this last year. It was really insightful, actually. It's very strange, kind of uh, you know, out of the mouths of an ass, I guess. But um, he he was talking about how he knew from day one. He goes, "My family, we people forget that Cubans escaped communism. They 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 group them in with every other Latino, so to speak. And it's like, no, no, they came from a, a, a actual communist takeover, and um." He he said, Castro is rolling over in his grave right now. And he's going, what? You did it with a virus? You didn't have to fire any shots, you know? But it was really the propaganda. If you could have, every, if you had told these, these revolutionaries 100 years ago, you're going to get people to take this and they're just going to stare at it. And then you're going to be able to tell them and they're going to willingly take it out of their pocket. And they'll watch it over and over. They'll make funny videos about it. They'll they'll um, they'll find ways to monetize for them. You can get you can pay them without having to pay them to be propagandists by the money that's made from the things that they buy from clicking on the things on the propaganda. Like it makes your mind blow about what it is. And that's a, an air of Russia par excellence, and that we see that uh, exploding in the 1950s. Yeah, next time you're in any public place with a bunch of people, just look around and see how many people are just looking at their phone. Yeah. That is the economy of effeminacy. This device yes. is designed to addict you to this the dorphin boost or whatever that you get when you get a like or a notification or whatever, and that is designed consciously to addict you to pleasure. Mm-hmm. And everybody's addicted. So. Yeah. But it started in the 1950s. So next week, we'll talk more about this post-war world we are going to finally get into because these are all the contexts for yeah, the interview that Sister Lucia gives, 1957. Father Fuentes. Father Fuentes. And so we talked about um, the consecrations that Pius XII did. We had our debate about um, Robert Sungenis's, uh thesis. We actually do have Sungenis coming on the show in uh, two weeks. So he'll he'll be presenting further his thesis about this period and Pius XII's uh, consecrations. Uh, we also have Kevin Simons. He's going to come on the show uh, next week, and he'll be presenting. Um, I hope we're going to. I think we're going to talk about some of he his critiques of the, sort of the trad narrative of Fatima, if you will. So there's there's good stuff coming down the pike at Meaning of Catholic on Fatima. As well as uh, this week, we have Chris Plants. We have Liturgy of the, Liturgy of the or sorry, Mass of the Ages podcast. I don't know when that's going to come out. We're recording it tomorrow, but on on Communion in the Hand, Abby Johnson, as well. And um, so this is all coming. Uh, also, RTF Mike will be on the show in a few weeks, so that'll be fun. He's going to talk about the Holy Face devotion, which is awesome. Excellent. So. Um, thank you very much for watching. Let's offer up in our father for the intention of raising our children to be hard workers and not shine away from suffering. And also for the sacred heart to reign in our families that, uh, Christ may be King of our families. Let me get, here we are. Sacred Heart of Jesus. All right, let's pray. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater noster qui es in Jesus, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cello et in terra. 
pane nostrum quotidianum da nobisodie, et dimiti nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostri, se ne nos inducas in tentationem, se libera nos amalo. Amen. In nomine Patris, Fidi, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Jesus is King. Amen.